once you put an idea like that into the world, it's just of superior utility, uh, really hard to disrupt or change uh, in any unfavorable way. It's hard to put that proverbial genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, the idea is out there. It's useful. People adopt it on their own accord. And so in that way, it's almost like an independent life form, right? This idea just takes on a life of its own. Uh, it becomes a thing that we all adapt to rather than having it adapt to us. And this is why many Bitcoiners say, you know, Bitcoin doesn't change. You don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. Um, and you can say the same thing about zero, right? It's like we, zero hasn't changed since it was introduced by Brahma Gupta, right? It's still just this symbol for nothingness. And it, we've not, it can't do anything about it. It doesn't change. It's an absolute that it changes everything around. It changes the whole mathematical system. And then that has um, second and third order consequences out into the world. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. You know, initially as zero continued to proliferate, it was, as I said earlier, it met strong ideological resistance in Europe. And a lot of this was from Christianity itself. It was refusing zero because zero seemed like it, were, it was linked to the void, right? Which... Uh, the church had kind of inculcated this primal fear of the void and infinity, as we mentioned earlier. And so this connection between zero and nothingness and chaos and pure potential, 
like this is a very fearsome concept in the eyes of Christians at the time, yet it was simultaneously supporting honest weights and measures, right? That merchants had this really useful mathematical system for calculating, negotiating, executing trade, one that was just better, faster, cheaper than anything else that was available, um, one that was supporting, as we'll see later, some other uh, utilities that were just just better, right? Just better tools for the job. And so you, you couldn't, even though there was this ideological resistance, the practical utility of the thing ends up outweighing and even changing the ideological orientation towards it over time. And, you know, basically people needed, people needed stuff, right? People needed wealth and goods. They needed economics to function. And for economics to function optimally, well, merchants needed a zero-based numeral system. So the thing continued to spread despite the institutional and ideological interest arrayed against it. And um, there's a quote here I'll read from Pierre-Simon Laplace, who wrote, Zero is a profound and important idea which appears so simple to us now that we ignore its true merit. But its very simplicity and the great ease which lent to all computations, sorry, which it lent to all computations, put our arithmetic in the first rank of useful inventions, unquote. So by the 13th century, you get people like renowned Italian mathematician Fibonacci championing zero in his work, um, which really helped the Hindu Arabic numeral system gain credibility in Europe, because this was here you had a a major, um, a major figurehead in the field of mathematics now advocating for zero, saying that this is uh, a really big deal. And, you know, I think you'll see similar things like this with Bitcoin. Like we've already seen guys like Michael Saylor coming out and championing Bitcoin. That starts to change other people's orientation uh, towards it. You know, people that are operating either as public company CEOs or otherwise high net worth individuals, they start to change their orientation to things based on these prominent individuals that get flipped. Uh, so it was similar with zero. And as trade just continued to flourish at this time, largely because of the Hindu numeral system being being adopted, um, new, you know, unprecedented levels of wealth were being created. And mass you know, because of that, math was able, it's sort of a two-pronged thing, because zero is not only giving you uh, a system that helps you helps more trade flourish and more wealth is being created, but that also, you know, with more wealth creation comes more freedom and more leisure time, more time to trial, to, to tinker, to perform trial and error and experiment. And when you start experimenting with the zero-based numeral system, you start figuring out all these new and interesting things it can do. And so um, the combination of, of additional capital creation, wealth creation, and the, uh, the functionality possible with this new zero-based numeral system led to mathematical mathematics moving from purely practical applications into more and more abstracted functions. And so... There's a quote here from Alfred North Whitehead that's relevant, which I'd like to read. He writes, quote, The point about zero is that we do not need to use it in the operations of daily life. No one goes out to buy zero fish. 
It is in a way the most civilized of all the cardinals, and its use is only forced on us by the needs of cultivated modes of thought, unquote. So there's like, you know, there's this upgrade occurring, right? Not only are we upgrading in terms of more more economic abundance, you know, more capital, more goods, more wealth, more leisure, more freedom, more options. But we're also learning about this new tool set we have in the Hindu Arabic numeral system. And so our, you know, with more freedom of thought comes more use of the system. And our thinking is like becoming more sophisticated in tandem, right? This is, this is a, we start going to eras like the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, like all around this time. Um, and we start getting new tools, right? New tools and technologies from the innovation. Um, and w one of these, so the abacus was something we used for a long time, right? It's like ancient cal calculator. You've probably seen little stone beads on bars used to perform arithmetic. And eventually as, as the Hindu Arabic numeral system is rising, you had these competitions sanctioned between the abacists, the users of the ab abacus, competing with users of the Hindu Arabic numeral system, the algorist, to see who could solve complex computations more quickly. And so, and as it turns out, with a little bit of training, surprise, surprise, the guys using the zero-based numeral system could readily outcompete the abacists. And these contests led to the demise of the abacus as a tool, right? We didn't need it anymore with the zero-based numeral system. And it also left, you know, it was kind of like this real-world proof point of the the decline of an old technology and the rise of a new one. So we, we've now, like, left the realm of, of people just having an ideological resistance to a thing, and you're having real-world competition prove it, right? Just prove... Uh, the point that that basically the zero-based numeral system is of superior utility. It's no longer a matter of um, just preference or opinion or, or even just market consensus. Like you're having these these very publicly visible competitions that's that's flat out proving the zero-based numeral system is better. Um, this kind of reminds me of this is in Alan Farrington's book. They open with this discussion of before mixed martial arts, there was a, a long time debate, like what would happen if a boxer met a jujitsu guy or a jujitsu guy fought a Muay Thai guy, like trying to figure out which fighting style was best. And what finally resolved it was the introduction of mixed martial arts that um, they started out pitting these guys, you know, like a karate guy versus a boxer or whatever in, in the old... I think it was called the UFC back then, originally the Ultimate Fighting Championship. But what emerged from that ultimately was this kind of like blended style of what we just call mixed martial arts today that is actually superior. You know, it's the actual superior style. Uh, it, it moved from this realm of theoretical debate and it moved into like a, a live market test to determine what's actually more useful. And I think the, the abacist out competing the algorist here is, is sort of similar, right? It's just this real, um, real time combat, you know, in quotation marks that prove the point, uh, that the zero based numeral system was just better. Um, we do still have vestiges of the abacus in our language though. 
uh, because again, there are these little stones that, that move across the bars. So it's where we get words like calculate, calculus, and calcium. Uh, they're all derived from the Latin word for pebble, which is calculus. And also before Hindu Arabic numerals, money counters uh, were using the abacus to to track value flows and loans, etc. Um, the counting board, which is another thing that um, some German lenders used, was called um, this counting board was called a Rakenbank, which is what money lenders, which would later be called banks. Uh, that's where you get the term bank. Actually, it's from Reagan Bank. You get bank. Um, they would use... Uh, I'm sorry, not tally boards. They're called tally sticks to track their lending activity. So they would give the debtor... They'd write the, take a stick. They would write the debt on it. They would break it into two pieces. The monetary value of the loan would be written on it. They would break it into two pieces. The lender would keep the larger piece, known as the stock. And then the, the borrower would get the smaller piece... And when the debt was finally repaid, the the piece would be returned, and the 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 lender, which held the stock as like proof of the loan, is where we get the term stockholder, right? That they held the stock that the borrower um, owed owed payment to. So then the 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 lender could actually exchange that stock with other uh, people that could then you know they could buy that as an asset as like an IOU from the lender or from the the borrower, and so. You got all these um, kind of changes happening technologically as a result of Zero's emergence. And then, but despite its superior utility, governments despised this thing. Um, and in 1299, Florence actually banned the Hindu Arabic numeral system, which is hilarious. Um, you know, you're outlawing an idea at that point, it's like trying to outlaw language. If you could imagine someone trying to outlaw the English language today or outlaw mathematics, like it just doesn't make sense. Like, how do you enforce that? Um, you can't monitor what someone is using or talking or thinking or saying. It's it's very uh, kind of asinine in a way. And, you know, like with many profound inventions, Zero was facing this vehement resistance from entrenched power structures that basically threatened their existence but again the power of the marketplace triumphs right because it was such a useful system that italian merchants just continued on lawlessly they said to hell with it and they continued to use the zero-based numeral system for all their accounting functions and and record keeping um, and they eventually figured out how to use it as part of this this crackdown, right, where where governments are trying to make it illegal, while Italian merchants decided, sort of by force of necessity, that they're going to use this system to start sending encrypted messages, such that you could send messages that you know governments could not decipher, um, and others, other prying eyes could not decipher, and zero was essential to these early encryption systems, uh, which is where. We get the word cipher, actually, which originally meant zero, and it came to mean secret code. And if you know anything about the history of Bitcoin and the cypherpunks, right, again, there's a, there's a deep connection here between zero and the, the ethos and genesis of, of Bitcoin. 
And uh, this, I think it just highlights the the criticality of zero as like another, you know, not only two ancient encryption systems, but also its, its contribution to Bitcoin's ancestral heritage in both the cypherpunks and obviously in, in software and elliptic curve cryptography, et cetera, et cetera. All these things, you know, even in their name, have their roots uh, in, in zero and its emergence. So it's just really fascinating. And later at the beginning of the Renaissance, you know, the threat zero would pose to the church was not initially obvious. Um, by then, zero had also, this is pretty fascinating, it had been taken up as an artistic tool as well. So it's, it's, it's fascinating how this just is like a mathematical concept, right? Well, philosophical experiential concept we discover in meditation becomes incorporated into a mathematical system, starts to change the way we conduct trade and, and perform uh, calculation, et cetera, et cetera. But then it, get, it like starts to permeate into the arts itself. And this visual manifestation or artistic manifestation of zero starts to be used in art called the vanishing point. Now, if you look at some of this art, uh, and I have two pieces of it in, in the essay itself, the vanishing point really sparked a great renaissance in the visual arts. The first painting I show was one prior to the vanishing point, and it's, you know, it's just flat and lifeless. Like, it's just like the castle is just like a wall. There's no depth to it. It's very two-dimensional. It looks like a bad cartoon or something. And then you, you come down to the next piece of art where the artist has incorporated this zero dimension point, right? There's, there's a point, just like when you look out onto the world, you look out onto a horizon, the point of maximal distance, like everything seems to converge towards that, right? Objects that are closer to you appear larger, in the foreground and objects that are further away or in the background appear smaller and it all converges to this point of zero dimension, right? Where everything disappears, you know, from your line of sight, either over the horizon or, or as far as you can see. That realistic experience of vision now becomes incorporated into the arts as the vanishing point. And it, it's, uh, it's this artistic manifestation of zero and, um, you know, just as it did, just as art does today, it has this very strong influence on our perceptions. Um, and eventually, you know, this culminated in a cardinal of the church, actually, named Nicholas of Cusa, who declared terra non essentra mundi, which meant the earth is not the center of the universe. And this declaration sort of presaged the... Copernicus's proving of heliocentrism, that is actually the Earth, that's the center, I'm sorry, the Sun, that's the center of the solar system, not the Earth. Um, and this would be the spark that would lead to the Reformation and ultimately the Age of Enlightenment. And, you know, I think just looking at these two pieces of art, it's very fascinating that one is two-dimensional, lifeless, boring. The other is three-dimensional, very realistic. You know, it, it just looks more real and so it's fascinating how that this again it kind of speaks to the 
universal nature of this discovery, right? That it starts to change mathematics and then change technology and change the way we think and then change the way we do art. Um, just, I think, is a testament to the profundity of of what we actually discovered in, in the number zero. And so, you know, it was this, this is why in that book, uh, Seif describes zero as a dangerous, heretical, heretical and revolutionary idea. Um, and it was, you know, really coming to it because once it becomes manifest in art, it starts to influence everyone's perceptions, even subconsciously, right? It doesn't, um, doesn't necessarily mean that they explicitly understood that the number zero had something to do with the vanishing point, but they just say, Hey, look, this art looks better. It, it feels better. And people start to gravitate towards that. Um, and it's just, it's this changing, right? It's this changing of, of people, um, toward adopting the thing that's better and away from the thing that's worse, basically. And so Seif has a great passage here that I'd like to read. He writes, quote, it was no coincidence that zero and infinity are linked in the vanishing point. Just as multiplying by zero causes the number line to collapse into a point, the vanishing point has caused most of the universe to sit in a tiny dot. This is a singularity, a concept that became very important later in the history of science. But at this early stage, mathematicians knew little more than the artists about the properties of zero. Unquote. So, you know, the art, I, Joseph Campbell has this amazing quote about art. And he says, the job of the artist is to mythologize the present for future generations. So the artist is like operating at the edge of our own conception of reality or our, our own, the paradigm that we exist within. And they are, um, crystallizing that into some artistic form that future generations can look back on and say, oh, I, you know, I understand how this art is representational of that period based on what was going on. And so when you look at, you see this by the way now in our, our fiat, fiat currency paradigm where consumption is incentivized above production um, we have, you know, you, you go to Art Basel in Miami and you see a banana duct taped to canvas or art, uh, you know, quote unquote art that's basically just trash glued together. Like th this is a representation or maybe even a mythologization of the consumerist paradigm we have uh, on a fiat currency standard. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. 
Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. So as I was saying about artists, um, you know, the, the, the creations that they make tend to have this impact on people's perceptions and in many ways they give future generations uh, these artifacts to look back on and understand what was happening at that point in time. And so when we look at Renaissance artists that were incorporating the vanishing point into into the visual arts, uh, and these guys, by the way, in true Renaissance man fashion, they were often also like artists, mathematicians, musicians, etc. Very, very multifaceted. Um, they, you know, they worked assiduously to that end. You know, even if it's unconscious, that they started to incorporate the vanishing point into art which changed people's perceptions towards it um, and ultimately gives us, you know, in, in the modern age, uh, a, a visual manifestation, manifestation to look back on and see how zero impacted uh, changes in culture and minds, etc. And in that way, you know, art, as it does today, it really accelerated the propulsion of this idea uh, across the mindscape of man. And I think in Bitcoin we see something similar, right? We're seeing Bitcoin art become more and more uh, sophisticated and interesting and um, helping to spread the meme that is Bitcoin. So, okay, going to the next section now. And this section is titled Modernity, the Age of Zeros and Ones. And this gets into perhaps the most important aspect of the invention of zero which is it's leading to 
the invention of calculus, really zero serving as the cornerstone of calculus, which is this innovative system of mathematics that helps people contend with ever smaller units approaching zero, but it avoids the logic traps that come with having to divide by zero. So we're getting a more granular uh, grasp on reality through calculus uh, that it gives us a very uh, high fidelity way to relate to the complexity of reality in a mathematical system in a way that nothing before it did. And this gave mankind like myriad new ways to comprehend the surroundings, disciplines diverse as chemistry, engineering, physics, basically every modern science in some way depends on calculus. Um, and you know, zero was like the source waters of this thing. So it's, it's not only is it, is it the source waters of these, of many technological breakthroughs that we've covered earlier, many changes in the arts that we just described, but it also like punched a hole in this framework of mathematics and, and Aristotelian philosophy, philosophy as we covered earlier. And it, it created this vacuum, right? It started to change things very rapidly. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's many parallels there to Bitcoin today. Bitcoin's like punching a hole in Keynesian economics, for instance, right? It's, it's, we have this entire economic paradigm premised on a false science and the introduction of an unstoppable sound money like Bitcoin is rapidly, it's rapidly changing people's orientation and interpretation of Keynesian economics to see it for the scam that it, that it is, rather than trying to argue about it within the confines of its own linguistic conventions, right? Which if you're, if you're in that sandbox of Keynesian economics and you're speaking in those terms, uh, it makes it very difficult to think outside the box and see it for what it is, right? To establish a new paradigm. But with the existence of Bitcoin, um, it undermines the whole thing, right? Because Keynesian economics says Bitcoin should be worthless, right? Because you need to expand the money supply to induce consumption and drive investment. This whole tail wagging the dog, uh, that this theory that underpins Keynesian economics, that consumption, uh, precedes, I'm sorry, that consumption precedes or, or induces production. Whereas in economic reality, it is production that precedes consumption, obviously, right? You have to grow the thing before you eat the thing. Um, yet somehow we've been duped or duped ourselves into believing otherwise. And um, yeah, it's funny how an invention just sort of just flips the whole thing. And so, you know, the... So zero leading to the invention of calculus, it becomes this very uh, indispensable tool in our mathematical arsenal. Um, I, as we get into the modern age, um, you know, without dwelling too much on its implications for science, but again, just basically every modern science would be not possible without zero. We can look at something that's very relevant to the digital age, which is uh, binary code, you know, zeros and ones, like just like this section is titled the age of zeros and ones. 
Um, obviously, you can't have the age of zeros and ones without the invention of zero. Um, digital tools like the personal computer, the internet, obviously Bitcoin, these things are all critically dependent on the existence of zero. Um, and all of these, you know, again, if you trace that through line all the way back to Brahmagupta, that this discovery and meditation sort of created this cascade of consequences as we just went through, right? Like uh, the the abyssus out competing the algorithm, the invention of the vanishing point, um, you know, getting into calculus, modern scientific paradigm, the digital age. Um, you know, it's this, this real, the something for nothing as we started this essay that this single gift really right like a guy just discovered a thing and then incorporated it into math there was no commercial value rendered to him it just was a gift that he discovered and gave the world um and this is a generosity that satoshi would obviously emulate many centuries later and you know there's a quote here from axel which i'll read and he says numbers are our greatest invention and zero is the capstone of the whole system, unquote. And, um, you know, this, to look at the internet, just the internet itself, the internet is this stack of open source protocols um, constructed of ones and zeros. It's, this, this stack is called the internet protocol suite. So layers you are probably familiar with, like HTTP, TCP IP. Um, these are used for permissionlessly moving information and communicating around the world. Um, that's what gives the internet such tremendous power that it's, you know, almost infinitely flexible, customizable, adaptable, uh, permissionless, and that you don't need like permission from a specific entity to create a website, for instance. Um, it just offers a, a, large degree of flexibility to the individual in terms of dealing with with information and communication and on top you know these digital communication standards that compose the internet protocol suite we get these radically new and useful social utilities right like email like ride sharing services like smartphones mobile computing etc cetera, etc cetera. uh you get this continual stack of, of more and better utilities, um, you know, the latest and greatest of which I would argue is the uninflatable, unconfiscatable, and unstoppable money, the internet of money, digital gold, Bitcoin. Um, now, getting back to the core of this essay, right, which is how it began, is that the impetus that I wrote this for originally was the attempt to answer what makes Bitcoin different than all of these other thousands of crypto assets and why is Bitcoin, why do Bitcoin maximalists believe and have a deep conviction in Bitcoin outcompeting everything else? And um, that's where I, I start to take this essay now. And I think it's a misconception that's somewhat forgivable. Because when we look out onto the world of money today, what do we see? We see many national currencies. Or there's, I think there's 200 some odd nation states in the world. Most of them have their own currency blocks. 
we have this huge $5 trillion plus per day foreign exchange market where currencies are being swapped from one form to another. Um, and it would just lead one to believe, right, without doing any digging, that money is a lot of different things in a lot of different places and that it tends to be something controlled by government uh, and in small or large regional monopolies. And um, and gold, right, which was kind of the, the original free market money, is a relic of the past because we just don't deal in physical gold often. Uh, we're much more accustomed to dealing in, in government paper. And to get beneath that, right, we have to understand the genesis of currency, which I've talked about a lot. But you basically had gold emerge as a free market money, but gold lacks in terms of portability. So we needed to put the application of currency on top of gold, right, which is another way of saying there were economic advantages to be gained by putting all the gold in central repositories and issuing paper on top of gold such that it could be exchanged widely and quickly and freely, um, augmenting the portability of gold to make it more transactable and useful for a globalizing society. Now, over time, of course, this creates a weird asymmetry where one group now has all the gold in their possession and you have to trust that group not to over issue the paper right not to issue more paper claiming to have more gold on reserve or on deposit than they actually do that is the fraud of fractional reserve banking when a, a warehouse of gold for instance may say say it issues a hundred tons worth of gold in currency notes but maybe it only has 50 tons on reserve that's a fraud to the tune of 50%, right? They're, they're misrepresenting their deposits by 50 tons of gold in that case. Um, now, that is something we've dealt with throughout the history of, of banking and central banking. But since 1971, we have been pushed on to this zero reserve standard, which is fiat currency, right? It's, you've now disconnected the application of currency from its point of origin, which was real money, gold. And there's a great quote by J.P. Morgan, I think that always captures this well. And he said that, quote, gold is money, everything else is credit, unquote. So currency is just a credit or debt instrument for gold. That's all that it ever was. It has never emerged on the free market anywhere. It has never ended in anything other than hyperinflation. Like all these paper currencies... Um, they eventually go to zero because the turns out the humans cannot be trusted and they do over issue and they engage in fractional reserve banking, zero reserve fiat currency banking, and then ultimately incentives just lead to an excess printing that collapses the currency ultimately. And so what this is, right, what we essentially have in this model to try and demystify this is a pyramid scheme. It is a flat out pyramid scheme where you have gold as the real money you have central banks as the holders of real money and the issuers of currency, which were at one point redeemable for gold, redeemable for real money, which have since been severed from real money. These currencies are no longer redeemable for gold. And the central bank now can push out new units of currency, profit from the production of this money in a, a process called seniorage, where they're actually netting the profit 
uh, of the difference between the face value of the currency and the the cost to produce, right? They can net net that as profit, um, and push out all the cost because the cost of printing new units units of currency is the debasement of purchasing power. They can push that onto market actors who are forced to use the currency, literally, like legally and physically forced to use and pay taxes in the currency, such that central bank insiders profit, all users of the currency lose, and uh, the further you are away from the money spigot, like the lower you are down the pyramid and the more you suffer. So the poor, those living on fixed income, retirees, etc., these are the people suffering the most in a fiat currency paradigm. Those that own assets that tend to appreciate against the currency that's being counterfeited benefit the most. They're actually extracting wealth from the bottom of the pyramid, reallocating it to the top. So the net dynamic of this pyramid scheme is that it, it eviscerates the middle class. The poor get poorer, the rich get richer, and surprise, surprise, when you destroy the middle of this pyramid, it collapses. And when it collapses, society goes down with it. So this is the, the tale that's as old as, as time itself when it comes to humans and money, is that people are always violently trying to acquire uh, the, the monopoly on currency production in a way that can benefit themselves and they can externalize the cost on the outsiders. And, um, you know, due to people's general ignorance of this entire topic, um, combined with the, what I like to call the cognitive optical illusion of rising prices, that, you know, if you see the dollar value of your stock portfolio or your real estate increasing, you just assume that you're becoming richer. And indeed, sometimes maybe you are, but what you're not seeing is the diminishment of the purchasing power per unit of dollar uh, that's being inflicted upon you. So it's 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 just a, a giant deception, a giant scheme of systematic theft that's incorporated into the primary instrument of economic trust in the world, which is money itself. So clearly not a good paradigm to build a sustainable civilization within. All this confusion related to the nature of money, it's understandable. Um, again, if you consider the incentives to obfuscate the nature of money, you don't want people to understand money if you're going to run a pyramid scheme through money. Uh, obviously, any critical thinking or cognitive effort pointed at that scheme would not serve its ongoing, would not serve its interest as a going concern, let's say. It's not, a, it's not an uncomplicated domain, right? Especially when you start talking about Bitcoin itself, right? There's a, a huge interdisciplinary effort that you have to make to even begin to understand the significance of Bitcoin. And, you know, just to bring this point home, like even a guy like Ray Dalio, who is the most successful hedge fund manager in history, um, he, you know, his, his position on Bitcoin has shifted since I wrote this essay in 2020. But originally he, and maybe he still does say this, I'm not sure, he thought that Bitcoin could be the BlackBerry and some other crypto asset could be the iPhone, right? He's still viewing money as a consumer tech product that someone can just introduce a superior smartphone in this case and disrupt the existing smartphone. 
failing to understand that money is something much more essential, right? It's a, it's a base layer protocol for human interaction, something much more like a language. Um, and that Bitcoin itself, like the idea of disrupting Bitcoin is extremely unlikely. Uh, again, for, for concepts that are a little bit complicated, but we'll get into here in that my position is that Bitcoin is this invention, right? Satoshi invented Bitcoin, but like Brahmagupta invented the numeral zero, but it represents a discovery of absolutely scarce money or fixed supply money or zero growth terminal supply money, right? The Bitcoin, the issuance schedule for Bitcoin stops at 21 million in the year 2140 and it will never increase again. It cannot increase at all. Um, in the same way that, you know, Brahma Gupta invented the numeral zero, which was, which represented a discovery of shunyata or, or the void, uh, his, his experience in meditation. And so Bitcoin is, here are the terms that I'll, I'll expand upon soon, but it's a path dependent one-time invention. And the critical breakthrough that it represents, the discovery that it represents, is absolute scarcity. This is something we've never had in the sphere of economics. We've always only had um, relative scarcity, right? Everything is is in, there's a certain supply of every asset in the world, and there's a certain uh, configuration of demand relative to that supply, and this determines the price and all assets trade at some ratio of all other assets. These exchange ratios are expressed in money. So, and money tends to be the thing that's most relatively scarce, as we saw with the case of gold, because that makes it the best store of value asset or the most, or the asset with the least flexible supply, let's say. So what we have with Bitcoin is a, an asset with a perfectly inelastic supply or uh, perfectly fixed supply. So whereas gold was like the most relatively fixed supply thing we had, therefore it outcompeted everything to become money on the free market. Bitcoin has perfected that quality. It has absolutized the quality of, of money supply or, or scarcity. And so as I'll argue in this piece, I don't think that's something you'll ever invent again. I just don't think that discovery can be achieved again. Uh, it's very much like the number zero that you found the absolute in economics. Like there's, there's zero is the sole absolute in mathematics. Even infinity, the reflection of zero, um, as an, uh, the mathematician's name escapes a bit, as it was later proved, there are actually infinity infinities. Sounds really weird, but if you create an, a set of infinite numbers, there's a way to prove that that set of infinite numbers does not contain another certain set of numbers. So that infinity has another infinity and it stacks up to infinity, something like that. But with zero, it's different. Zero is just this single, changeless, absolute notion in mathematics. It's the only thing that does not, you cannot change it, right? It's, there's no positive zero or negative zero, right? It's just a zero. Zero is the centerpiece or the fulcrum of the entire system. And, um, and Bitcoin's the same, like the, in terms of its money supply, 
it's fixed, right? It's zero change. It's absolute. It does not move. You can't, um, it's an unshakable, immovable centerpiece to the economic system. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three-day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, this is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, day one's industry day. Days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, just a really all-around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So like the invention of zero, which led to the discovery, which was the discovery of nothing as something, basically in mathematics, um, Bitcoin is this nothing as something in the sphere of money, right? It's, it's this, it's just information, it's just intangible yet it's the it's perfected the properties that people seek and get money which we'll also get into in a little bit and I, I really think that if zero was this tool we used to deal with this latent reality of the void let's say i think bitcoin is this tool we use to deal with this latent reality of, of time human time which we're ultimately using money to trade and, and in that way, Bitcoin is a perfect tool for dealing with time because time itself is absolutely scarce, right? It's, it's something that we cannot increase the supply of no matter what we do. You can't print new units of time um, at, at an individual level and then at the collective level, right? How many, however many human hours there are at any one time in the world, is, that's all we've got to work with. Um, obviously, the population can increase and you can increase uh hours in that way but at any one time you have a fixed supply of human hours and um and bitcoin is something that just maps onto that perfectly right the absolute scarcity of bitcoin maps on perfectly to the absolute scarcity of time which makes bitcoin the ultimate money for for trading in human time so it's more you know it's even more i think than just a monetary technology and this is why we struggle to define it because it's an entirely new economic paradigm. There's never been anything like it. It's an uncompromisable base money protocol for global, digital, non-state economy. Right? We don't need 
the state in a Bitcoin world. You don't need an institution that is stealing from you and ostensibly providing security, right? You just need consensual human action. Um, and it's, it's basically a, a change in the incentive landscape. So by having recourse to a form of property that's really hard to steal, expensive and risky to steal, you actually dissuade and devitalize the institutions that, that specialize in stealing, which are the state and the central bank. So it moves us into a totally new world, right? All those institutional realities we have created on top of gold, which culminated in the central bank and fiat currency are now subject to revision, right? On a Bitcoin standard because they, they fall into irrelevance over time. So all that said, I want to, going into the next section here, titled The Path Dependence of Bitcoin, we'll try to expand upon the concept of path dependence and explain its importance to Bitcoin's emergence. So I define path dependence initially as the sensitivity of an outcome to the order of events that led to it. And in the broadest sense, you could just say that history has inertia, like the order of events matters as much often as the events themselves. And if you, if you read the piece, there's a, a little infographic that shows kind of how this works. And, you know, the example that I cite, the very simple example is like, you get a dramatically different result if you dry yourself off first and then shower versus if you shower and then dry yourself off, right? You did the same things, but when you switch the order, the outcome is like completely opposite, right? And the first instance you're going to be wet. The second instance, you're going to be dry. So it's uh, very important what order we do these things in. And it's especially relevant to complex systems that are highly interconnected and have a lot of interdependencies. Um, because each thing you do, it has unforeseen consequences and impacts on other aspects of the system. So as the order of the things changes, the entire evolution of the complex system changes. Um, and once you go down, like once you start down a specific trajectory or specific pathway, the inertia can become very insurmountable. Right. Um, and so you could think like the other example I use here is the standardized electrical outlet. You know, we've sort of coalesced or developed this social consensus on a certain type of electrical electrical outlet. Um, in the United States, obviously a different one in different parts of the world. If you were going to change that, there's only really two ways to do it. And it's a, there's the pull method, which means you'd have to introduce something that consumers wanted that was so radically better, right? Like it, typically people talk about it being a 10x improvement that consumers would want to go through the headache of changing all of the, the electric outlet standards, right? You'd have to change all the outlets in all your walls, in your house, in your office, et cetera. You'd also have to get new adapters for all your electronic equipment that plug into it. Uh, there'd have to be some significant gain, right? Economic gain or otherwise to induce um, people to voluntarily make such a change. Now, the other approach would be the push method where you're actually, there's some giant monolithic organization that's just forcing the change 
Um, and this, you know, we actually had something sort of like this at one point. In the 1970s, the U.S. government tried to force people to switch to the metric system. Um, and there was just massive pushback, right? There wasn't that economic gain to be had, so there was no pool. Consumers didn't want it. Consumers resisted it, and eventually the U.S. government capitulated. And here we are, right, 50 years later, still not on the metric system. So when we look at Bitcoin, we see this asset that was launched into the world as a one-of-a-kind technology at the time. There had never been anything like it. A non-state digital money that's issued on a perfectly fixed, diminishing, and predictable schedule, right? Perfectly fixed supply. We know with the utmost certainty how many Bitcoin will be in existence, when they will be in existence um, for the rest of time, basically. And so it was released strategically. Satoshi dropped this thing into a, a room of, of uh, cypherpunks in a, a online chat room. And its adoption just happened organically, right? People started consensually using it. Uh, the mining network started started to be started to proliferate on its own people would start running miners uh as they competed among one another to earn bitcoin mining technology became more sophisticated right we went from uh what cpus to gpus or maybe i have that backwards could be gpus to cpu i think it's cpus to gpus to asics right these application specific integrated circuits that we use to mine bitcoin today um and it just that that's like that's a single idiosyncratic chain of events that already happened like we can't rerun that experiment and if you like as a thought experiment to understand why consider that if a new bitcoin is released into the world today it exhibits relative to current bitcoin so bitcoin versus new bitcoin new bitcoin necessarily has very weak chain security right the the mining network is going to be much smaller uh in re in relative terms to existing bitcoin and so its hash rates lower its mining network smaller it's less secure uh it has less liquidity right there's going to be less people willing to accept it and trade and it's got less developer mind share it's just a smaller network overall and so also when you release new bitcoin into this world it's not a totally new technology. It's not something that doesn't exist, right? Bitcoin already exists. 30,000 shitcoins also exist. People are aware of this technology. It, it's, it's, not, it's not able to fly under the radar of being something so radically new and misunderstood that no one cares about it for a while, which is what Bitcoin was. It was written off as a complete joke. It still is written off as a complete joke by some people in the world. But especially during its early years, most people just wrote it off and ignored it. And it was that cover that let Bitcoin grow organically and get to the, the point that it is today. And so this new Bitcoin would not have that advantage. It'd be released in the world where people are very aware of it. Um, and if it has such weak chain security, well, there's going to be a big incentive for people to attack it, fork it, otherwise uh, manipulate it or change it. Uh, whether these are incumbent projects, right? This could be other, this could be other, uh, this could be Bitcoiners even, right? Trying to attack the chain to protect Bitcoin. If 
if that if they felt the need to do so. This could be other shitcoin projects trying to defend their lead. Um, this could be banking groups, right, trying to prevent the next Bitcoin from emerging, or even nation states. So new Bitcoin, right, when we're talking about introducing something that can disrupt Bitcoin, just doesn't have the benefit of being released into the wild of a world that just doesn't understand the technology. So this is one case of, or one aspect of path dependence protecting Bitcoin from disruption. That this organic sequence of events that already led to the release and assimilation of Bitcoin into the marketplace has already happened. And you can't, it's very difficult to try and repeat that. You can't launch a new project that benefits from the same, that benefits from path dependence in the same way. Actually, path dependence works against a new project because of the awareness that I mentioned of Bitcoin. So even if new Bitcoin had this perfectly fixed money supply, um, its holders, actual holders would be incentivized to hold the money that had the greatest liquidity, network effects, and chain security because, well, you're storing purchasing power in the thing. You don't want the second best security. So there's this, you know, individual self-interest is pushing people into to stay in old Bitcoin and not sell it for, for new Bitcoin, for instance. So all of this points to path dependence. Basically, um, there's very little chance of launching a, a project from scratch that compete, like a proof of work chain that can compete with Bitcoin. It's, it's like, you know, the chances are slim to none, essentially. What is more likely and what is actually consistent with history is that people would seek to fork Bitcoin, right? This is a social contract attack on the social contract that you try to fork the community uh, by changing the consensus parameters of Bitcoin. And, and you basically cause a hard fork. So holders of existing Bitcoin would then be allocated new Bitcoin one-to-one, and then you let these two social contracts compete and whichever one um, gets more uh, gets more of the community to hold it, right, to save in it, and not sell it would basically be the winner. And this is essentially what happened in 2017 with the fork wars, that Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash was the hard fork. Uh, you could read it. There's a book about it called The Block Size Wars. Great examination of what happened. And it essentially represented a small cadre of people trying to capture Bitcoin. They wanted to, and it had a lot of very powerful actors, actually. So it's it's a testament to how Bitcoin is ultimately controlled by the individual nodes, the individuals that hold it, and not it resists co-option by these these larger um, vested interests like like miners and etc. So in that world, this is what happened with Bitcoin Cash: like holders get forked one to one. And then you decide, right? Like, do you sell Bitcoin Cash? Do you sell Bitcoin? Do you hold them both? Do you sell them both? Like, what do you do? And what's, what history shows is that while Bitcoin Cash was a much smaller um, social contract and Bitcoin was much larger, and the reason being that Bitcoin Cash was opting for larger block size. And what that does is it, it, it makes it 
more expensive and difficult to run a full node. So it actually impinges on the decentralization of Bitcoin because it makes it harder to run a full node. So, you know, Bitcoiners being smart sniffed this out and they said, okay, you've allocated me Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash one-to-one. A lot of people opted to start dumping their Bitcoin Cash. They would just sell it for dollars or maybe sell it for more Bitcoin. And then what do you see? Well, you see the Bitcoin Cash price chart denominated in Bitcoin and it's just, an, it absolutely collapses. It loses to Bitcoin. It gets outcompeted by Bitcoin. Um, and I show an image of that in the piece and then I mockingly say Bitcoin Cash is considering a rebrand to Bitcoin Crash. Now, so we have the thought experiment, like the theory that's also justified by the empirical evidence. If we take that, that theory or thought experiment a step further, and we say, even if new Bitcoin featured a diminishing money supply, so something that's like, you know, absolute scarcity is like zero. And now we're talking about a money supply that actually decreases over time. So that would increase the purchasing power per unit. Wouldn't that be enough to break the network effect of Bitcoin and disrupt it? Well, I think if you think through it, you'll figure out that, no, that's not going to work either because you get into these weird questions like, how do we determine, like, what is the right rate of money supply decay or deflation to be determined, right? So you get fights over that, right, inside the community. Should it decline at 1%, 2%, 5%, how long, forever? Like, can't go forever because I know it would go to zero. Like, how do, you, how do you deal with that? And then you also get this other, the secondary fight for determining how do the market or how do you, the network participants in this new Bitcoin with a diminishing money supply, how do they jockey for position and benefit from it? Like who gets the benefit of the, the decrease in purchasing power, right? Someone's Bitcoin is being burned. Whose is it and how, like what is the mechanism? So you get all of this uncertainty and then as they're jockeying for position, in that network, what's inevitably going to happen is more forks, right? People are going to, one group inside of that uh, new Bitcoin social contract that says, I think it should deflate at 1% per year. Another group's going to think 2%, 3%, et cetera. This thing's going to start forking apart. And each of these social contracts are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And again, with that comes less chain security, less network effects, less liquidity. And what do you get? You get a bunch of little tiny new bitcoins that are trying to be uh trying to be deflationary money and they just the forks kind of rip apart the social cohesion and then at some point you know market actors are gonna say look i can't keep storing purchasing power in this thing that keeps getting forked to death so i'm probably just going to dump this and go back and do original bitcoin that has this really strong um social contract large large amount of liquidity robust network effects, chain security, et cetera. So that's it, right? It's just like, you know, you might think that that would be a, a, a workaround, let's say, to disrupting Bitcoin, but I think you would ultimately see something very similar to Bitcoin Cash's abject failure, which is just, you get a fork um, in this, and Bitcoin Cash actually went through this as well. You ended up getting Bitcoin Cash forked into Bitcoin SV and Bitcoin blah, 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 all these different things. And eventually just got forked to death. And what do we have? We have Bitcoin just continuing uh, on with its, you know, perfect 
0% supply growth rate, right? It's just a fixed supply. So, so you can't disrupt Bitcoin by introducing a fixed supply asset. You can disrupt it by introducing a diminishing supply asset. So it, again, either introducing or hard forking just doesn't, it's not going to work. So what's the net outcome of this? The net outcome is that path dependence ensures that anyone that's trying to game Bitcoin or co-opt Bitcoin or control Bitcoin in both a theoretical sense and an, an empirically observed sense, they get burned. They lose, right? Look what happened to Bit, Bitmain in the 2017 block wars. Look what happened to all these characters that, that advocated for Bitcoin Cash. Roger Ver, et cetera, et cetera. Like, they got burned. They lost a lot of money and... um yeah, it just it just proves the staying power and the immovability uh, of of Bitcoin. So, and you know, it's that. So it's kind of like Bitcoin's first mover advantage plus path dependence. Plus, there's four sided network effects, which I've talked about before. You know, standard network effect is um, the the standard example is the telephone, right? If you have two telephones, one connection is possible. If you have five telephones, I think it jumps to like 12 possible connections. If you jump to 10 telephones, it's like 65 possible connections. You have to check my math on this, but the point is the number of telephones grows, as the number of telephones grows linearly, the number of possible connections grows super linearly, like exponentially. So that means that the network becomes exponentially more valuable with each new node or telephone that you add. Now that's your standard network effect. Somewhat hard to disrupt, but you see things like Facebook disrupting MySpace, right? Like once one company introduces a superior value proposition to one cohort of users, you can disrupt a one-sided network effect. It can be done. It gets much harder when you have two-sided networks like... Um, Craigslist, right? You've got buyers and sellers in one place. To disrupt a two-sided network effect, you have to introduce a superior value proposition to buyers and sellers simultaneously. Otherwise, neither one wants to move because sellers want to be where buyers are, buyers want to be where sellers are. And so this you see in the, you know, Craigslist is just like this pared down, uninnovative website, right? It doesn't need to do a lot because it has a two-sided network effect and a first mover advantage. So it's largely protected from disruption. Now, if we look at Bitcoin, it has four-sided network effect because you have buyers, sellers, miners, and developers, essentially. So if you want to disrupt Bitcoin, like not only do you have to get through path dependence as we just described, but you also have to introduce a, a superior value proposition to all four cohorts simultaneously. Otherwise, no one's going to move. So all of these, like taken in combination, these things seem to make Bitcoin's first mover advantage seemingly insurmountable. Um, and it's, you know, it's this, again, just this idea, right? This idea of absolute scarcity, even though it goes directly against entrenched power structures like central banking. Um, once you put an idea like that into the world, it's just of superior utility, uh, really hard to disrupt or change uh, in any unfavorable way. It's hard to put that proverbial genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube. You know, the idea is out there, it's useful, people adopt it on their own accord. 
And so in that way, it's almost like an independent life form, right? This idea just takes on a life of its own. Uh, it becomes a thing that we all adapt to rather than having it adapt to us. And this is why many Bitcoiners say, you know, Bitcoin doesn't change. You don't change Bitcoin. Bitcoin changes you. Um, and you can say the same thing about zero, right? It's like we, zero hasn't changed since it was introduced by Brahmagupta, right? It's still just this symbol for nothingness. And it, we've not, it can't do anything about it. It doesn't change. It's an absolute that it changes everything around. It changes the whole mathematical system. And then that has um, second and third order consequences out into the world. So, and I like this idea of ideas being like their own independent life forms because it reminds me of the Carl Jung quote, which I cite in the piece. And he says that, quote, people don't have ideas. Ideas have people, unquote. So something to think about.